Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for Michael and his gifts. We thank you for our guest Jeremy that's here with us today, filling in for Mark. We thank you for these talents that you've given to them. We thank you for the opportunity to be here in your presence in this first Sabbath of the new year. And Jesus, we pray that as we go throughout this year of 2015, that we each day will be more deeply in love with you. We thank you, Jesus. Bless us as we open your word now. In your name we pray, amen. While I'm up here speaking, I appreciate your prayers. Last night when, yesterday afternoon when Charlotte spoke with me, yesterday evening, I didn't think it was the worst idea for me to speak. This morning when I got up at six, I didn't think it was the worst idea for me to speak, but as my eyes are starting to burn, starting to, and I'm feeling a little, a little tired. It's not the worst idea, but it's not your best idea either, Charlotte. I'm reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 13 to begin with. You can open your Bibles. Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. As well, if you have a Bible on your iPad or your tablet or your iPhone, you're welcome to open that. Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. Next week, we'll be continuing the series that I had started in my previous two Sabbaths, but um, this was... Last minute, uh, I decided I'd save on that series. We don't have our connection cards for that, so we'll wait till next week. Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, Jesus went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was no, not the season for figs. This story, if you just take it in its plain, uh, naked self, is an odd story. It's an odd story because based on the, the previous text, that, that the previous story that Jesus did not know that there was a lack of figs on this tree is surprising. I mean, in the previous story in the book of Mark, Jesus tells the disciples exactly where to find a colt, what to say when they find that colt, and, 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 and we see Jesus being presented in the triumphal entry. Now he is unable to ascertain from a distance whether or not a tree has fruit on it. Jesus can read people's thoughts. We have many stories of Jesus being able to read people's thoughts, but but he can't read a tree. Jesus can, can feed 5,000 people, but he can't find a, an individual piece of fruit for himself. This story, in a lot of ways, just seems odd. Yet maybe even more confusing than this is, is, is Jesus' reaction when he comes upon the tree with no fruit. Verse 14 says, Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus curses the tree, this inanimate object that has done nothing to Jesus. He curses it. 
I have never understood why people, when they smash their thumb, then immediately kick the wall. I don't understand things like this. I don't understand why people shout at, at, at their, their objects, inanimate objects that have done nothing to anyone. And yet, yet here Jesus, we see Jesus, this, this inanimate object that has done nothing to Jesus is, is cursed by him. Because this story seems out of place with Jesus' character, I'm hesitant to say this, but, but the story seems, the, Jesus' actions seem almost selfish, maybe even a little childish. If my son yelled because he didn't get the food that he wanted, I would say, we don't act that way, get to your room, grow up. Yet here Jesus is cursing this tree. We tend to read through this story rather quickly. We don't spend a lot of time on, on the, on the uh, lesson of the fig tree. We don't fully understand maybe what it's talking about and thus we, we pass it without a, without a ton of thought. Okay, this is just the story that, that is a prelude into a story that we really, really like. We like the triumphal entry and we like the story immediately after this one. We like the story of the exalted king and the king, uh, the righteous king that is, has branches laid before him. And we, we like the story that's immediately after the fig tree. The story of our king, our, our indignant king. But the story of the cursed fig tree, our hungry king, doesn't seem to fit. And so we move quickly by. And in moving quickly by, we fail to see Jesus illustrating through, through live action a prophetic truth, a profound prophetic truth that he wants us to understand. This story uh, of, of the fig tree is a live action drama. I know some people don't like that word drama, but this is what is happening. It's a live action drama. Jesus is, is through the actions of his life, through, through his actions, he's displaying a great prophetic truth. This is not the first time that we see this in the Bible. We see this live action prophetic truth taking place all over the scriptures. If you read the books of Jeremiah or Ezekiel, you see all kinds of crazy things. People laying naked, people eating weird things. We won't even talk about what they're eating. Waistbands and broken jars and building things and all, all kinds of live actions that they do in order to display prophetic truth. God asked Hosea, his prophet Hosea, he said, I want you to take your entire life and I want it to be a drama for me in which truth will be conveyed. I want you to go and marry a prostitute. Weird live action drama. Some of the stuff you'd see it in a movie and you say, we're not gonna let our kids go watch that. Live action drama, it's all over, all over the scripture. Jonah sitting under a, 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 a vine that grows up in a day and then withers in that same day in order to teach him a lesson, in order to teach him a, a, a profound truth. Live action prophecy, live action truth, something that takes place. It's not just words, but literally he's performing a real life prophetic drama. Jesus himself is doing this. The clue for this is in verse 13 of Mark there. Seen at a distance, a fig tree and leaf, he went to see, and then this is a key word, if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And then listen to this phrase. He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for what? Figs. 
Mark writes that it was not the season for figs. Surely Jesus, a man who was raised in that region, surely Jesus, who, who is the creator himself, surely Jesus understood this. It wasn't it, wasn't it, isn't it Mrs. White who tells us in Avidus home that, that every child should have their own garden plot so that they can grow things and that they can understand the great truths of God through nature. And, and isn't it Mrs. White who tells us that, that Jesus communed with nature? He spent time in nature, communing in nature. And yet, he wasn't aware that it wasn't the season for figs. He would have surely known this. Another hint in the verse that shows us that Jesus had another purpose when approaching this tree is again the word perhaps. Jesus went to see if perhaps there was some fruit. It wasn't the season for hit figs, perhaps maybe there'd be some fruit. He was therefore not surprised by the tree being fruitless. This didn't catch him off guard and yet his response seems as if it's one who is caught off guard. Why does Jesus curse this tree? The answer to this question is actually in the following story, the story that we, that we all like. This story is part of what is known as a Markin sandwich. A Markin sandwich is a, is a literary technique that the, the writer, that Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, uses to help us to understand a great truth. Basically what it is, is Mark begins one story, he begins one story, and then he interrupts that story with a second story before completing the original story in order to explain some deeper truth, some deeper meaning. Some of us do this without meaning to. I start a story, I forget all about what I'm talking about, and I start on something completely different, and then my wife says, what about that over there? And so I come back to the original story. Not on purpose, but Mark uses it as a literary technique in which he wants to convey some greater truth. So the middle story in between the, the bookends of the original story help us to understand the greater purpose, the greater meaning of this. Therefore, in verse 15, Mark interrupts the fig tree story so that we can actually understand what he's saying with another story. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple, that's Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temples. In most of your Bibles, this second story is titled Jesus Cleansing of the Temple or Jesus Drives Out the Money Changers and this is a story that many of us know frontwards and backwards and side to side. Some reason we like to see Jesus indignant and upset. For some reason we like that. I don't know if it's because there's something inside of us that likes to have our own uh, uh, angst justified. You know, well Jesus got indignant about that at church. I'm gonna get indignant about what I wanna get indignant about in church too. I don't know why we like this story so much, but we t people tend to like this story of Jesus getting riled up and, and passionate. I was taught and believed for a long time that Jesus' actions here are solely for the purpose of reformation. That Jesus does this because he's, he's trying to reform the temple. He's defending his house. Some scholars and individuals claim that Jesus is opposing the buyers and sellers because they are interfering with the Gentile worship. 
They're interfering with the Gentile worship. Gentiles were not allowed to, to worship in the main areas with the Jews and had to worship in a small area in the courtyard. But if this is the case, if Jesus was trying to do this, what good did Jesus' outbreak of anger accomplish? He got upset, he yelled at people, he knocked things over. And the next day, where were the Gentiles still worshiping? In the same place they had worshiped the day before, where all this was taking place. Others believe that Jesus' concern is for the temple's purity. And this prompts his action, that, that he's, he's concerned about the purity of the temple. Jesus can't stand the idea that, that commercial activity has invaded or been permitted in the sacred space of the temple precincts. But then we must ask the question, was this really sacred space that, that was there? Edward Schweitzer actually says that, that it was like the space before a church uh, before a church that was visited by pilgrims. He says it was like a, a, an outer courtyard or an outer area similar to what would be our parking lot or, or our grass where people arrive and come in or the foyer. In verse 17, the phrase, den of thieves or robbers, has influenced the most common view, the one I was taught most in my life, of the causes behind Jesus' actions. The temple business, in many ways, had become a crooked practice. People, people in the camp often, people in this camp often believe that, that Jesus is, is not condemning the selling of animals because they had to do that in order for the sacrifices to take place. This was a necessity for the sacrifices. Many people would travel from far away. They could not bring their animals with them or a, or a bird with them. And so they would come to the temple and they would have to purchase one in order to provide the sacrifices. They say Jesus isn't condemning the buying or the selling of the animals, but he's condemning the thievery that came in through this practice. That, that the temple coffers, the, the temple money collectors took advantage of this necessity in order to line their own pockets for their own personal gain. This is true. This did happen and this was taking place. I'm sure Jesus disagreed with this practice and, and some say, well, you see, Jesus is, is defending the oppressed and that's why he's upsetting the temple courts in this way. But there is no evidence these are actually the people that Jesus is specifically angry with. In fact, I would say the evidence actually goes the other way. Look at closely at verse 15 with me. In Mark there. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were what? Buying and selling in the temple. Did you catch that? He was not just after those that were oppressing the people. He throws out the ones who were supposedly being oppressed as well. If you were a person and, and Jesus, and someone came in and said, started defending you and then, and then uh, I actually saw this happen one time. I'm gonna tell you a quick story. I was at Byron Scott's basketball camp. Any of you heard of Byron Scott? He's the coach of my beloved Lakers that are doing awfully this year. And it's Sabbath, so no one needs to think about how awful we are. But, but I was at Byron Scott's basketball camp, and these two girls began to argue with this individual. And another girl came over to defend one of the, one of the girls. And the girl she was defending actually got mad at her or actually kind of said, stop, don't, don't worry about it, it's okay, it's okay. And the girl, she was, said, don't touch me, be quiet. And they actually got into a fist fight right there. The, the girl that was 
defending this one girl, punched the girl she was defending. True story. So Jesus is coming in and he's defending the ones that are being oppressed. Get out of here. I'm not talking to you. I'm defending you. Just get out. Doesn't make any sense. Jesus isn't doing this. He's not, there's something else that is going on. Something else that is going on. If none of these are really the main point, why is Mark relating this story to us in his gospel? I've maybe mentioned one of your views on this text already, but I wanna ask you to put those views aside and, and think, of, think of this text, consider this text from a different perspective, from fresh eyes maybe this morning. I don't wanna denigrate the other points. I believe there, that, that there's, there should be sacredness in the house of God. I don't wanna denigrate the idea that, 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 that we need to guard against making Christianity and the things of God commercial. We need to, we need to defend against those points. We need to, to protect the oppressed and we need to be a place that welcomes all people. We shouldn't have sections for some people and, and openings for other people. All of those are good points, but I don't believe that those are the true points or the true concern of what Mark is trying to share here in his gospel. But he's trying to share something far more important actually to the heart of God. So what is Mark actually saying in this text? If we look at the, as we look at the context of the passage, as we look at the lesson of the fig tree, I believe we'll see a point beyond just the periphery points to the heart of Christ's prophetic action. So if Jesus is upset, why then is he attempting to purify and reform the temple? The best answer is, from Mark's point of view, Jesus does not intend to reform the temple. Mark is not giving us a commentary about temple reformation or about temple purity or even reverence. Jesus is engaging in a live prophetic action, just like Jeremiah did and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Agabus in the book of Acts. Jesus is, is looking to make a point, a broader, a larger point through his actions, a point that is sustaining beyond the moment and is actually an internal, an eternal point. Let me use this illustration to make it more understandable. I used to have a Honda Accord. I still have a Honda Accord. I've been driving a Honda Accord since I was a sophomore in high school. I love Honda Accords. My wife has been driving Honda Accords since about the same time, so we are a Honda family. We do have a Ford now. Uh, we wanna support our great nation as well, but we have a Honda uh, Accord as, also. And we just sold a Honda Odyssey van. We love our Hondas. But I had, at one point in my life, the lemon of all Hondas, I believe. It had 250,000 miles on it, which you may say is a lot of miles, but for a Honda, that's not that many. You know, it should go much further. But this thing broke down on me all the time. I admit it, I admit that I drove it very hard. For 10 years, I drove it very, very hard. And a number of little fender benders, I will just tell you now that I am the worst driver that I know almost. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna be a typical male, no offense to typical males that think that they are better drivers than everybody else. I'm not, I'm bad. And uh, so I, I was once in Berrien Springs and I was, it's, it's really because I'm, I, distracted doing other things sometimes. You know, I was once in Berrien Springs and, and I had, a, I had 
uh, paper that was due, and I was trying to, to type out a few extra notes and a few little things while I was driving, and I hit the postmaster's car in Varian Springs. I turned, was turning a corner, and I decided to start typing right at that moment, and I slammed into uh, this car, and I got out and walked into the post office, and I said, whose car is that? Oh, that's the postmaster. Well, that's lovely. Um, most of my accidents have all come at five miles an hour or less, so if I hit you, you won't be hurt, but I uh, just want you to know that. But anyway, so I had this Honda Accord, and right before we were going down to our first pastorate in Georgia, uh, it's, it broke down on us, and I said, well, we got to get it fixed. We can't afford a, a new car, so we're going to get it fixed, and and make sure it gets down to Georgia. And so, so we put a bunch of money, we put a lot of money into fixing this Honda Accord and we got it down to Georgia. Not long after we were down there in Georgia, we, the, the Honda broke down again. It started breaking down again. Whenever it was too warm, not the car, but the outside, when it was too hot outside, my car just wouldn't start. And so we got that fixed and then and then we thought, well, okay, that'll work now. Well, it started doing it again, and I literally had the lemon of all Hondas. And before long, I said, you know what? I'm not gonna put another dime into this thing. I made the decision in my mind that this car was no longer a value. It was no longer fulfilling its purpose. It was no longer fulfilling its need. And so when it broke down, I just waited till I could get it started again. And what I mean by that is, again, when it was cool in the day, I'd start it, and in the hot of the day, if it didn't start, oh well, I wasn't gonna go get it fixed. The battery's going bad, oh well, I'm not going to get it fixed. The tires need, we need new tires, oh well, I'm not gonna get it fixed. Well, I got so tired of this, struggling with this car on a regular basis, that, that I one day went in to my wife, she had come, she worked nights at the time, she, was, she is a nurse anesthetist, and she was a nurse at the time working ICU, and she worked nights, and she had worked the night before, and my car would not, uh, what took forever to get started. I finally got it started. And before I left the house, I jumped out of the car, I ran back upstairs and Christina was already in bed. She was already asleep. And I knelt down by the edge of the bed and I said, honey, I'm gonna go look at cars today. <laughs> and she woke up just enough to say, don't buy anything. <laughs> I said, I'll call you later. So I got in my car and I drove out and I was coming down 41 there in, in Calhoun, Georgia. And I'm driving along, minding my own business. It's a beautiful day. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this giant vulture, no lie, this giant vulture flies in front of my car and slams into my car, attacks my car. <laughs> slams into my car. And it was so large that when it hit my windshield, I could not even see out the front of my windshield. And I immediately looked in the rearview mirror to see if I could see the vulture. You know, where did it go? It was nowhere to be found. It probably just kept flying. It was that big. It won the battle. And I turned my attention back to my windshield, and there's a split right down the middle of my windshield, and there's this annoying noise going on, and that's because my windshield wiper was now flapping against the side of my car like this. And I took it as a direct sign from God because vultures are a symbol of death, and he wanted this car to die. So I drove a, a, a 45 minutes north to the city of, of Dalton, Georgia with this, this thing flapping along the, the thing with determined in my mind that this car was dead, I no longer wanted it, and I was gonna get a new car. 
Well, I wanted to be able to tell my wife that I did due diligence, and so I stopped at every car dealership along the way, the Toyota and the Nissan and the Ford and, and, and all of these, but I had one place in mind, of course, the Honda dealership. So I'm driving down the hill towards the Honda dealership, and my car breaks down. Another sign from God. And I coasted straight into the dealership, parked my car, acted like nothing was wrong, got out, began to look around at their used cars, saw this nice little green Honda that I liked, began to talk to the dealer. We, we worked out a price, and I said, oh, by the way, you know, once you work out the price, then you tell them you have a trade-in. I said, oh, by the way, I'd like to trade this, this fine piece of work over here. And... And he said, can I test drive it? I was like, sure. <laughs> I gave him the keys and he went and I said a quick prayer. I said, God help at the start. He turned it on, started it up. Another sign from God. He wanted this guy to have it and not me. <laughs> he drove a circle around the parking lot. He says, I'll give you $400 for it. I said, deal, let's go. I called Christina. I said, can I, can I use your phone? I didn't have a cell phone with me. I said, can I use your phone? I called Christina. And she woke her up and told her, honey, I bought a car. She said, I thought I told you not to buy anything. I said, I just said I'd call you. So I did not agree. So I bought this car, went home, took that car home. But what is the point of this? The point of this is this, that the moment that I decided that that car had lost its value, was no longer fulfilling its purpose, I was not going to sink another dime or another moment into that car. Why? Why would Jesus seek to reform or purify a temple and a system that he had just said was no longer of value? Mark chapter 13 verse 2, Jesus speaking about the temple. Do you see these great buildings? Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Can the point be reformation and purity? Why would Jesus attempt to reform and purify a temple and a system that he predicts will soon be destroyed? Again, the answer is that I don't believe he intended to reform or purify the temple. Jesus is not going to sink another dime into that beat up old lemon. It's not that the system in itself had been broken, but the way in which it was being used had been broken. It was no longer fulfilling its purpose. And so Jesus, through his actions, is going to illustrate a larger point. He wants to illustrate a larger point to his followers, and he wants to illustrate a larger point to us. This prophetic demonstration, what is it all about? What does Jesus want us to learn? What does he want us to understand and see? Back to our original chapter, verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Notice the three things that Jesus goes after when he goes into this temple. First, he goes after the money. Logistically, what does it take for a church to run? On a logistical level. Not on a spiritual level, but on a logistical level. Takes what? Money. Takes money. I notice we're about 4,000 behind in our budget this year. If one of you has a $4,000 check in your pocket that you just forgot to give at some point, we're happy to receive it today. 
um, on your way out. But it takes money. If you all didn't pay offerings, we would not have this building. We would not have the equipment that we have. We would not have uh, some, of the, some of the nice, wonderful ministries that we have. If you did not pay your tithe, you would not have your pastors. It takes money to run a church. It was no different for the temple. The money paid for the animals. It paid for the running of the temple. And, and what we see most of all within the scriptures, the money paid for the priests. Jesus attacks the money. With no money, the priesthood must end. The second thing Jesus goes after are the animals. What are the animals for? The birds. What are they for? They're, they're for sacrifices. He chases out, out the doves. If there are no animals to purchase, then, then what? Sacrifices must end for many of the people. The third thing that Jesus goes after is the merchandise. It says he, he tipped over the merchandise, would not allow it to pass through. The, 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 the Greek word actually there, literal translation for this word is the vessels. And some scholars have, have indicated that these are probably the sacred temple vessels that are being carried through to their appropriate or designated spots. The vessels for the showbread or the oil for the lamps or, or the incense. All things associated with the ceremonies of the temple. If no vessels can be carried through the temple, then all the ceremonial activity must come to an end. Do you see what Jesus is saying through these actions? He's not looking to purify or to teach a moral lesson with these actions. Jesus is prophesying. He's proclaiming the destruction of the temple. More importantly, he's, he's, he's prophesying and proclaiming the, the destruction of this system. He's symbolically attacking the very function and purpose of the temple. Remember this, Jesus is at the last week of his life before he is taken to the cross and killed. He's trying to teach them something very important that will take place the moment that he hangs upon that cross. When he dies, even though the physical structure may still exist for another 70 years, the necessity for the temple in the way that it had been used by the nation of Israel at that time, no longer has its purpose. Jesus is telling us through his actions, he's telling us through his actions that you no longer need a priest. You no longer need an intercessor on earth. You no longer need sacrifices. You no longer need the ceremonial rituals of things. You no longer need a human mediator or a human intercessor. Hebrews chapter seven and verse 23. This is what Jesus is telling us. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Listen to this. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus through his prophetic action is letting us know these priests are finished. This need for a human mediator is finished. You no longer need an imperfect man or woman to represent you. You have the perfect mediator, the perfect high priest once and for all Jesus Christ. We are not in the bondage of having to confess to a priest. We're not in the bondage of having to have someone speak to God 
on our behalf. We are free in Christ Jesus because he is the only priest that we need. We know this logically, but sometimes I think we're really bad at following through on this. Talked to plenty of people who have come into my office and said, Pastor, Pastor, I need, to, I need you to pray for me. Okay, I'm happy to pray for anybody. I believe strongly in prayer. I believe that we should call the elders of the church to pray over people. I believe in this. I believe in prayer. But I've had people say, oh, pastor, okay, now I'm good. The pastor has prayed for me. You were good when you prayed for yourself. You were good when, when, when Joe Schmo, who has no title in the church, prayed for you on your behalf. Because we don't, need human intercessors. We have our high priest, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we still feel, man, I, I gotta go to the pastor and confess. And there's things that people confess to me I don't ever wanna hear. <laughs> pastor, I did this thing. Okay, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> pastor, is it gonna be Okay. Man, I don't know. Talk to Jesus. That's, that's, that's a rough one. You know, I think of Mrs. White's statement. was publicly, public sin, publicly confess. Private sin, privately confess. Privately dealt with. Jesus is our high priest. Now, I'm not saying that I won't pray for you. I will pray for you. I just don't want you to think that my prayers are somehow more important than your prayers. They're not. I don't want you to think that somehow confessing to me has any merit. I confess to one person, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the one that hears and forgives and heals and pardons. The people, Jesus is declaring an end to the priesthood. Jesus is declaring an end to the sacrifices. The people had to always go before the priest bringing sacrifices to offer for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter seven, again, in verse 27, speaking of our high priest Jesus, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died once and for all for your sins. We need to believe that. We need to understand that and accept that. You can accept or reject that gift, but he has paid the price for your sins. It's your decision to accept that or to reject that. Jesus, though, was your perfect sacrifice. Jesus is your perfect sacrifice. Jesus, through, through his prophetic action, this prophetic drama, is declaring that sacrifices are no longer necessary, that your sacrifices, in order to gain salvation, in order to earn salvation, are useless. See, the Jews had, had no longer, were no longer looking upon the lamb as something to point to the Messiah, but many of them were looking upon the lamb as an action in which they could earn their own salvation. And guess what? Even though we don't slaughter lambs and doves anymore, many of us still work and still sacrifice thinking that somehow this will get me just a little bit, a little more into the good graces of God. It's human nature. It's human nature. I know when I've been a jerk of a husband, I think, 
if I buy flowers or I do something really nice before I try to have this conversation of reconciliation, that might go easier. Anyone else ever have that thought in their mind? A few of you are nodding. Even some of the ladies are nodding. That's good, ladies. I'm glad you same moment. And somehow we do the same thing with Jesus. Okay, I've done something really bad. I don't feel like I'm quite good enough to get back to him yet, so I'm gonna do this thing, these good deeds, and then somehow that will, that's basically us just still believing that if we offer sacrifices, we will be more savable. But the Bible tells us we have one sacrifice, and that's Jesus Christ. And no other, no other. He is our perfect sacrifice. And finally, Jesus is putting an end to the ceremonial law, the ceremonial functions of the temple. No longer do they need the showbread because Jesus is the bread of life. No longer do they need the oil as a symbol because Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit. He's asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit to us and into our hearts. No longer do we need the incense to symbolize our prayers. Jesus receives our prayers and intercedes with them on our behalf. Jesus is saying the temple is dead and by the end of the week it was dead. It was because Jesus died and rose again. We no longer needed a priest on this earth because we had our high priest, Jesus. We no longer needed to offer sacrifices as, as a means by which to somehow earn salvation because Jesus was our, is our perfect sacrifice. We no longer needed these, these ceremonial functions in order to be reminded because we had the bread of life, Jesus Christ. We, had the Holy, we have the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends into our hearts. Verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city, and as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Mark's finishing his first story. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Weird statement, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying there? Jesus was not coming to reform the fig tree. He killed the fig tree. What is Jesus saying there? You see, there had been a whole nation of people, the whole group of people that have, had come to rely upon a system as their means of salvation. They'd come to rely upon a, a set of deeds and a set of functions and a, and a set of people in order to, to be in good relationship with God. And what Jesus is saying is, is, that's not the way that you are in good relationship. You have faith in God through Jesus. Jesus is saying this system can no longer produce fruit. It's like the dead tree. The disciple and, and the Jews were like, oh no, he's upsetting the, the culture. He's upsetting the system. He's upsetting the temple function. What are we gonna do? And he said, don't worry about it. Have faith in God. Have faith in God because this system is like that tree. It can no longer produce good fruit. What is the only thing that can produce good fruit? Faith in God through Jesus Christ. You see, the system was broken because of this. The system could only provide a little bit of reformation. 
The system could only provide a little bit of purity. The system could only tweak your conscience for a time. But ultimately, the lasting fruit, the fruit that is eternal, can only be produced through Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't want to reform you just a little through a symbolic act. He wants to reform every aspect of your life. Jesus doesn't want to purify us only just a little through, well, at least I participated today in church. He wants to purify every aspect of our lives. Galatians chapter two and verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but what? Christ lives in me. Jesus no longer wants to compete with the high priests in your heart and my heart. Jesus no longer wants, to, wants us to, to try to earn our way into heaven through our own silly sacrifices. He wants us to trust in his perfect sacrifice. Jesus no longer wants us to think that, that, that we have to go through a certain ceremony and, and structure in order to have relationship with him. He wants to know that, that our relationship with him is secure because he died on the cross, rose again, and is our perfect intercessor. Jesus went into the temple to destroy the imperfect and to raise up something perfect. To let us know that the systems of man, the systems that we come to depend upon are ultimately incomplete. And the only thing that will truly bear fruit in our lives is faith in God through Jesus Christ. The lesson of the fig tree is that if we are tired of living the imperfect, incomplete realities of this world, then it's time to trust in that which always bears fruit, and that is our attachment to Jesus Christ. It's time to let Jesus come in to our hearts, to our temples, and clean house to get rid of the trees that bear no fruit, to get rid of the, the systems that bear fruit, to get rid of the legalism that bears no fruit, to get rid of the negative attitude that bears no fruit, get rid of the works that we think will somehow save us but ultimately bear no fruit. And to trust and have faith in God through Jesus Christ and watch as he bears much fruit in and through us. I pray that in 2015, that whatever systems you've come to rely upon, that you'll make sure you're not relying upon those systems, but instead will rely upon Jesus Christ and bear much fruit for him. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that through your live action drama, you remind us that you are the only way to bear fruit. Lord, you set up this practice within the temple. You put the sacrifices in place. You put the priests in place. All as a means by which to point people to you, Jesus. And yet the people had come to rely upon those things as the Savior themselves. Lord Jesus, forgive us where we have done the same, where we've come to rely upon any human individual 
whether a spouse or a friend or a parent or a pastor. Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive us for the times when we've made church more about ceremony and function rather than as a reminder to point us to you, Jesus. Forgive us for the times that we have made sacrifices, not because we're in love with you, Jesus, but because somehow we think our sacrifices will help you to love us more. Forgive us for this, Jesus. And in 2015, may we have faith in God and watch as he produces fruit in our lives and in our church through the power of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Amen.